Welcome back to Bible Time, 1 Thessalonians 3.11. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. We're studying through the book of 1 Thessalonians. As you know, if you've been following these podcasts, um, and those of you that have been here every day or... um, tuned in somehow, you know that we're going through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and this is a letter from Paul to this church. Um, Now, God here is dealing with this issue of discipleship in our text. God's got to do it. He says here, now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. God's got to do it, but God uses men to do it when God does it. And that's a really simple thing to say, but it's very profound. It's um, to understand both those things simultaneously is rare. Most of the time we will understand one or the other. Somebody will say, God's got to do it, and they understand that. But then they can't comprehend that God would use man to do it. And then other people get the concept that God uses men, and they say, well, God sends men. God uses men, and they fail to comprehend the need for God to do it. The men are to be the instrument. God is to be the one that uses the instrument. The men are the conduit. God is the source of the power and of everything good that comes to the church. So today we're looking at the providence of discipleship. Providence is a benevolent act of God on behalf of man. Um, Providence was used a lot by the founding fathers of the United States of America. They would constantly refer to providence because they understood that there was a um, providential hand at work in the formation of this country. They understood that um, God was moving, sometimes even the weather, sometimes the hearts of kings, sometimes Sometimes God would turn bullets. Sometimes God would give bullets, but God was moving and they saw the providential hand of God. Now, the word providence in a way is a word that especially uses um, both the concepts of God's sovereignty and of man's agency. The word providence, therefore, is a very good word for this part of our study. Um, Understand the word providence means a benevolent act of God on behalf of man man. And that benevolent act of God on behalf of man will be recognized when man is trying to do something and can't get it done. And God does something that allows man to do what God had intended for man to do or what God is allowing man to do. And then providentially intervenes. Providence is a word that can be used for miracles. Providence is a word that can be used to describe the sea that was calmed and in Galilee whenever Christ calmed the storm and the wind stopped and they said, what manner of man is this? They saw providence. They saw the hand of Almighty God whenever Jesus Christ had said, peace be still. They saw the hand of God stop the storm. And that's what made them say, what manner of man is this? Because they were used to seeing, to understanding and giving glory to God for his providence. But what they were not used to was a man, i.e. Jesus Christ, using his own word to command the benevolent power of God and it to happen. That was unseen and unheard of. And it shows the deity of Christ, that he being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But was made in the likeness of men. And though he was God in the God in heaven, he became a man and died on the cross for our sins, according to the scriptures, and was buried and rose again the third day. 
So the providence of God in the ocean is not unlike, and in calming the sea is not unlike the providence of God in discipleship. This is something we've got to get um, our heads around, and we can see it here in this verse. He says, God himself and our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, which also shows the deity of Christ, he says, direct our way unto you. Now, why didn't he just pray, now God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, establish you. Instantly fill you with all the revelation of himself. Why didn't he just pray that? Why didn't he pray, now God our Father, God Himself, download into your brain everything about God that He wants you to know and make you a perfect Christian. Sanctify you holy, sinlessly perfect right now with one stroke. May God do it. Well, that would be wonderful. That would be uh, um, absolutely wonderful. And I have often wished that God would do that for me. And yet it has not yet happened. And still... um, I would love for it to happen, but God doesn't do it. Why not? Here he says, direct our way unto you. God uses human agency to accomplish his sovereign will. And this is a truth that you must get a hold of. This is absolutely necessary for you to get a hold of. If you don't get this, you will be in one ditch or another on every doctrine the rest of your life. Do you hear me today? Understanding the providence of God is dealing with the ways of God. It's one thing to know God. It's another thing to begin to understand God's ways. The Bible says that God's ways are not our ways. Do you hear me today? God's ways... God's ways are not our ways. Our ways are not God's ways. God's ways are higher than our ways. Now, God's ways often to us look lower than our ways because we would do things differently than God would do them. And that's why people say, well, if God is so loving, why did he allow the devil? Why did he create the devil when he knew the devil would rebel? Why did he create Adam and Eve and the tree knowing that they would eat of the tree and then tell them not to eat of the tree even though he knew he would? If you do not begin to comprehend God's ways, you'll never grasp it at all. And really the explanation is not an easy explanation, but to really begin to comprehend why God does what he does, you have to begin to understand God's ways. And to understand God's ways, you have to study God and what he did and what he said about what he did and what he said about why he did did what he did and the more you get to know about why God does what he does the more you the more you understand that the more you understand providence and the more you understand providence the more you're able to comprehend balance in doctrine the, think of the think of the doctrine, for example, of salvation. God said that man was totally without hope. Um, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And man in that condition cannot save himself. So Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins. And the universalists come in and say that means all men are saved. But the Bible says he's the savior of all men, especially them that believe. And that separates out a class 
us in a group of people who are the recipients of salvation and thereby shows that there are a group of people who do not receive the salvation. That though Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men, yet all men do not get saved. Only those, especially those who believe, especially means a group that is special, a specially segregated group that has a special um purpose, has a special um, quality to them, and the quality that God is giving to that group that is saved is that they are those that believe. Now, if you understand that God is sovereign and you look at salvation and man's depravity, the next thing you know, you're off in some kind of extreme left field where you say man can do nothing and has no part in salvation. We don't need to preach the gospel. We don't need to share the gospel. We don't need to be witnesses. Um, you don't need to really even um, try to find God or seek God. It won't do you any good. God's just got to grab you by the ne- back of the neck and jerk you up to heaven if you're going. And that's a lie. It's a total imbalance, and it's um, not rightly dividing the word of truth, and it comes from a failure to understand the providence of God. God works through human means. He works through human agency. God has sovereignly chosen to ordain those that unto eternal life who believe and you cannot get around that fact but if you understand the agency of man and the working of man in salvation that God has commanded all men everywhere to repent and that God has commanded us to believe the gospel and he says that those that obey his command will be saved and the obedience of the command of Christ is the obedience to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that's clear in the book of 1 John this is his command that you should believe on the Son of God, on Jesus Christ. That is the command of God. And if you obey that command, you will be saved. And so you get a grasp of that in your mind. And you begin to understand that man is saved by obeying the gospel and by taking responsible action when confronted with the reality of his sin and of God's means of salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ, that if man will repent and turn to God, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll be saved. And you understand that. But then what you do, if that's all you grasp, is you run off into another ditch and you fail to comprehend the sovereignty of God and the drawing power of God and the ordination, the foreordination of those that are saved and the election of the saved. And you you neglect those clear scriptures that are just as much in the Bible as whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and you fail to rightly divide the word of truth and next thing you know you're in the other ditch and you're telling people to save themselves by some kind of human exercise of intellect or will or emotion and you're pushing people up to the cross trying to get them to repeat a prayer or go through some kind of motions so that they can claim salvation even though there's no evidence of any divine working supernatural drawing or a conviction of the Holy Spirit of God in their life and you've gone off of the other ditch. 
Providence is the working of God, the benevolent act of God on behalf of man. And providence of God is often seen in human agency. God's got to do it. Anything good that happens has to be done by God. But God uses men when God does what God does. Jesus said, abide in me and ye shall bring forth much fruit. As the branch cannot bear fruit except it abide in the vine, neither can ye except ye abide in me. Without me, ye can do nothing. And so we see from Jesus Christ himself, pay close attention here, the branch and the vine analogy. And the branch or the vine bears the branch. Without the branch, the vine is you or without the branch, the vine is not going to bear fruit. How many of you have figured that out yet? Jesus doesn't need you to save the world. Jesus died on the cross to save the world. But Jesus Christ has ordained that the church go into all the world and preach the gospel. And without the church obeying the gospel commission, Christ will not receive the inheritance of the reward. And now I've got everybody mad at me. I've got the people that think it's all human agency mad at me, and I've got the people think it's all God mad at me, and it is all God, but God, whenever God does his thing, does it through man and through human agency. But human agency, apart from God, can do nothing. Do you, do you see what I'm saying today? The branch is born by the vine, but the vine has to have the branch in order to bear fruit as well. The vine has to have a branch that's loaded with grapes, and without the branch... Well, it's got all the grapes on it. The vine will be fruitless. Have you ever seen a vine that has been um, pruned all the way down to just a stump? In between the seasons, they've cut all the branches off of the vine and it's just the vine sitting there. It's a pretty sorry looking thing. And by the way, if you look at Jesus Christ on the cross when all his disciples had forsaken him and he was pruned down to nothing but the vine, he was a pretty sorry looking thing. The Bible says his visage was more marred than any man. He was so mutilated, so beat, so pruned that you couldn't even hardly tell he was the vine. He was so destroyed, so beaten. But from that pruning, from that death on the cross for man's sin, he opened the way to salvation and the branches began to grow shortly thereafter. And those branches that shot out, those 11 apostles that were left, that begin to shoot out and the church that sprung forth from that at Pentecost and the fruit that began to come from that was glorious and then you can see the vine in its glory. You can see the vine bearing fruit. God uses men to do what God does and God sovereignly decrees, ordains, foreordains and elects men to do what he has called them to do and God then enables the man that he has called to do to do what he has called him to do but then God gives man choice in how man goes about doing it but this would be kind of like a train you think of a train a train is on train tracks it can't just say oh I want to go by Walmart the, the train engineer can decide how fast to go, how slow to go, when to speed up, when to slow down. He can honk the horn, but he's on the train tracks and he's not going, he's not getting off the tracks without a major wreck. 
God has his God's will that God has given man allows man to operate and function and make some basic choices within his will. But that will has you locked down. You say, no, it's not. I'm a free agent. I choose what I want to do. All right. Choose to give up the ghost right now. Choose to give up the ghost. Show me how sovereign you are. Let your spirit depart from your body right now. And I'm not talking about suicide. Suicide is wicked, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying actually separate your soul from your body or your spirit from your body. Here's another one. Why don't you choose to make your own air and breathe your own air? And how about you get your own planet to live on? How about you get your own sunlight to warm you and to light your way? How about you get your own energy? Listen to me today. You're on some tracks. God's made some train tracks for you to live on, and you're not getting off those tracks. There's some basic laws that God has ordained, and that deals with the creation of man. But further than that, there's some basic laws of salvation that God has ordained that you're not going to get out of. You can't get through. You're not going to get to God without submitting to His sovereign will. But further than that, there are some train tracks God has given. There's a way that God has ordained for you to grow in Christ and that way is discipleship and if you reject that way you're going to have stunted growth you can only do so much now I've got to get back to my text before I get off on a rabbit trail here and try it and we get lost we got to get back on this God now God himself and our father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you this is the object of our text it says he says three times of God God himself our father our Lord Jesus Christ here's the object of his petition the object of his prayer direct our way unto you this is about men teaching men like we said before God could just tell them um just, I want you to know everything that there is, and boom, you would know it. The Bible says when we see him, we'll be like him, and we'll know as we're known. That's an amazing thought. There's going to be a day that this happens. There's going to be a day that we stand before God, and all of our sin and our sin nature is purged from us, and we become like Jesus. When I see him, I will be like him. The Bible says, and when that day comes, that glorious day, and I become like the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ, the old things will be completely done away. In Christ, they're already done away positionally, but they will practically be done away in Christ that day that I see him. But in the meantime, on this earth, in the life that we have to live, there is a practical a practical reality that God has ordained men to teach man. The Bible says in Romans 10, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But it says, how shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe if they do not hear? And how shall they hear if they do not preach? And how shall they preach except they be sent? And there you see the sovereign will of God to save the souls of lost men linked directly to the operation of a local church church sending out a preacher and the preacher obeying the call of God and staying faithful to his sending and carrying the gospel to the lost and that lost sinner then hearing it and then believing it and placing his faith and trust in God and being saved and the sovereign will of God thereby linked directly to the operation of man and God does this with teaching God did it this way on purpose. Go to Isaiah 28. 
Lord, help me not to rabbit trail. In Jesus' name. <coughs> Isaiah 28. This is a famous verse. Um, most people don't know the context of this verse. <coughs> verse 10 especially. But we're going to start in verse 9. Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. Now, we have looked at this yesterday about how we're supposed to grow. And we, we're like newborn babes in the Lord when we get saved, and we need to grow. The Apostle Paul told the church there um, that there was something lacking in their faith, and they needed to grow in their faith. And he says, Whom shall he teach knowledge here in Isaiah 28? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon it says precept upon precept, lying upon lying, lying upon lying, here a little and there a little. Now you'll hear preachers say this, especially teachers that preach textually or that um, at least preach through the Bible. Um, <coughs> they preach it <coughs> in order. <coughs> Excuse me. We'll say this verse. But most people don't read the context. And this is part of God's sovereign will and what God has ordained <coughs> and part of his purpose in it. Verse 11, For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing. What is the rest and what is the refreshing? Line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, there a little. This is the rest. This is how God teaches you, and this is the rest. He teaches you a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. Line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. He teaches you this so that you can rest, so that you can have comfort, but he says here in Isaiah, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, and a precept is like a law. He's saying the word of the Lord was to them like one rule on top of a little rule. You learn in math, two plus two equals four. Then you learn that two minus two equals zero. Four minus two equals two. Six minus two equals four. And you learn these laws, and you learn these facts a little bit here, a little bit there, and you grow a little bit at a time as you learn. And that's what he's saying. Precept upon precept. He says here in verse 13, the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Did you hear that today? Did you hear that? Why does God teach little by little, little by little? So that you can fall and go backward and be snared and taken. Why? Because foolish people who think they're too smart for their own good will not submit to hear a little, there a little Bible teaching and preaching. That's why. That's what he's saying. People whose hearts are hardened, whose ears are closed, who think they're smart, will not sit through here a little, there a little, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. They have itching ears. 
They want all of it now. They want the punchline now. Just skip that verse and get on to something good. We've heard this before. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to teach you here a little, there a little. So here we see the sovereign will of God, the almighty power of God in heaven has chosen, God has chosen himself to force man to learn slow. That's how he's chosen to do it, sovereignly. And in doing that, he's sovereignly chosen man to learn by hearing preaching that is basically, in its, in its basic reality, dull. Because it's here a little and there a little, line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, and you've heard it before. So you listen to a sermon and you hear somebody talk for 50 minutes and he says stuff you already know. And then at one point in the middle of the sermon, he'll say something and God will hit your heart with it and you'll get one little nugget. And the rest of the sermon, it is good. It reinforces what you already know, but you already know it. And most people won't sit through it. Most people won't bear it. Most people won't take the patience for it. And that's what he says here. Look at verse 14. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. And he goes on there, saying, speaks about the stumbling stone, which is Jesus Christ, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Do you see that? He that believeth, verse 16, shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the lying and righteousness to the plummet. And there, and he goes on from there talking about the judgment that's coming. But the judgment is laid to the line. And that's, and it, with the context of it being a plummet, he's talking about the string line, a little different from line upon line, where it's talking about more like the lines of text, but it still does tie back. The judgment is going to be laid to the line. And that string line is laid out there. And then the wall is built line upon line, precept upon precept, one brick at a time a brick here a brick there well in our day of our super fast-paced society nobody wants to take time to slow down and learn the bible god's way so what do we do we get a prophecy conference or something like that and get a bunch of people to stand up and wow us with a bunch of new facts that we haven't heard. We fill our heads with apologetics. We get apologetic speakers. Why? Listen to me. Get this, get this down. If you can get this, it'll help you. Why do we have such a thirst for apologetics in America? Because we've heard the rest of it before. That's why. Or we think we have. Oh, I read through the Bible once when I was a kid. You know, I talk to people and I'll go house to house and stuff like that for, at different times. And I'll say, have you ever read the Bible? Meet somebody at the gas station. Give them a gospel of John. Have, here's part of the Bible. Have you ever read it? A lot say, no, I've never read it. And that's um, very grievous to me. We call ourselves um, the Bible Belt down here in one of the most Christian parts of a supposedly Christian nation. And most people will say, I've never read the Bible. But those that have read it, if they're honest, a lot of times they say, oh, a long time ago when I was a kid, I read through it. They had a little challenge at church, read through the Bible in a year. And they read through the Bible once and they heard it. Okay, done. Moving on. Next. Let's get on to the next thing. And they won't give the Bible the time of day. Now, they'll go listen to archaeological dudes 
Joe Schmo with his little toothbrushes that's been digging around in the sand and has a bent fork from the Assyrian era and wants to spend an hour giving a lecture on how the bent fork proves a verse that's obscure in the Bible that doesn't even really have any doctrinal weight to it that's there more to back up other things and he's using it out of context. But they'll go listen to that, but they're not going to listen to straight textual Bible preaching and teaching. Why? That they may go back, go and be, fall and go backward and be snared and be taken. See, this is God's means. This is God's way. This is why Paul was saying, I'm praying night and day exceedingly that I might see your face and perfect that which is lacking in your faith. That's why he's saying here that to God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way unto you. That's why he's so desperate to get there because Paul sees the value of discipleship. That while we don't need discipleship in one sense, God has ordained discipleship, and therefore we do need discipleship. What an irony. What a strange reality, because God's ways are not our ways. So first, God, when he saves you, he makes you, um, he makes you a child of God. The Holy Spirit of God moves in. Jesus said, if any man love me, my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode in him. So when a man is saved, born again by the power of God, God the Father and God the Son move in. And furthermore, Jesus said, I will send the Comforter unto you, which is the Holy Ghost, and he will dwell with you. And the Bible says that if any man have not the Spirit of God, he's none of his. And the Holy Spirit dwells in the believer. So when a man's born again, he has the Holy Trinity living inside of him. He has just become a partaker of the divine nature through faith. Hallelujah. Am I speaking the truth? Is that true? Here's a man who's been born again and he has almighty God living inside of him. And then the Bible says in the, in the gospel of John or in the first epistle of John that the anointing which you have teaches you all things and you need not that any man teach you. And this is all true. But then God in his sovereign will chose to make you need teaching to make you need preaching, to make you need each other. And that's one of the reasons he did it, so that you would need each other and so that you would be humbled, humbled before God. That's one of the biggest purposes of it. Do you know why you need discipleship, the biggest reason? It humbles you. Do you know why you need to sit under a preacher that preaches some of the same things you've heard all your life? It humbles you. It humbles you. That's why. You say, yeah, but I don't really need it. But you do. You don't need it, but you do because God ordained it for you. But in any case here, he says, who is like me? Who is like me? Look at verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Paul here addresses his prayer to God himself. Isaiah 46 and verse 4 God says here to the house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, he says, which are born of me, um, born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb, verse 4, and even to your old age I am he, and even to whore hairs will I carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. 
to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? You can cross-reference that to Philippians 2.6. Check that out later, where it talks about the equality, how Jesus is equal with God. He says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? So the first part here of this prayer where, God, where the Apostle Paul is saying, now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. Now God himself. God exclusively, God without the aid of any man or other so-called deity, God alone. 45, the chapter before in verse 21, he says there, have not I the Lord and there is no God else beside me, a just God and a savior. There is none beside me. And look at the start of that verse, tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient times? Who hath told it from that time. Have not I the Lord? He's saying, where did all this wisdom come from? Where did all this truth come from? Where did the Bible come from? From God himself. So Paul begins this prayer in an earnest desire, praying exceedingly night and day that he might see their faith and perfect that which lacketh of their faith. And he starts this prayer appealing to God himself, which is almost contradictory to even the idea of going back and trying to perfect their faith. Because he's saying God himself, God, the sovereign almighty God, God alone, God who has declared and who shall let it. God who has declared from before the ancient time, God who hath told it from that time. Have not I the Lord, says, the, says God in Isaiah 21 or 45, 21. And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a savior. There is none beside me. Who let them take counsel together? Who is going to teach you? If God doesn't teach you. Who is going to grow you in the faith if God doesn't grow you? Who is going to perfect that which is lacking in your faith if God doesn't do it? Is this carnal man going to do it? Is this simple man going to be able to make you established in the faith? I struggle. I walk. I walk the same walk you walk. I've got to put on my clothes in the morning. I've got to take a shower and get cleaned up or I stink like anybody else does. If God doesn't do it, who will do it? Brother Jim Landon preached if God help you not how shall I help you from the barn floor or the wine press where am I going to help you from where am I going to get something that can help you if God won't help you God himself has got to do it apart from all human aid all human intervention God himself his appeal is to God alone Isaiah 48 and verse 16 come ye near unto me hear ye this I have not spoken in secret from the beginning from the time that it was, there am I, and now the Lord God and his spirit has sent me. Whoa, that's a mind blower for those that want to pick and choose which part of the Trinity that they love. That one will blow you up. <coughs> but in any case, here it is. He says, I even I have spoken. <coughs> I even I have spoken, yeah, I've called him. And he says down here in verse 16, that it am there am I. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. In other words, you've got the Bible. 
You've got God's word. He's not spoken it in secret. And he says, from the time that it was, there am I. I existed when I spoke. I ex- therefore, I was before. And now the Lord God, Jehovah God, and his spirit has sent me. So here you have the Trinity, the Holy Trinity of God um, displayed here in Isaiah forty-eight sixteen. You have God who is being sent. Back in verse 12, I am the first and, and the last. And he's the one that has come to, and look at verse 13 mine hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand hath spanned the heavens when I call unto them they stand up together all ye assemble yourselves and hear which among them hath declared these things the Lord hath loved them he will do his pleasure on Babylon and his arms shall be on the Chaldeans he's saying here I'm the creator I'm the one that spanned the heavens verse 15 I even I have spoken yea I have called him I have brought him speaking of the Chaldeans and he shall make his way prosperous come ye near unto me hear ye this I have not spoken in secret from the beginning who is this mysterious one who created the heavens who stretched out the heavens whose hand laid the foundation of the earth whose right hand spanned the heavens who spoke from the beginning who did not speak in secret that says from the time that it was there am I and now the Lord God that's Jehovah and his spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, hath sent me. So this is the creator God sent by Jehovah God, by the Spirit of God. You have the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee, which teacheth thee, which teacheth thee to profit. God himself. I am God, he says. Not this man saying it, but God saying it. He says, I am God alone. And then with the same mouth, he says that he's the creator that laid the foundation of the earth and spanned the heavens with his right hand and that he has spoken from the beginning and not in secret and that he was from the beginning, there am I, and now the Lord God and his spirit hath sent me. And you have the whole Holy Trinity. And what is the Holy Trinity doing in verse 17? Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. All the glory goes to God. Now, most people don't want to submit to God's teaching, and this is why. If God showed up in his triune power and glory, you imagine in your heart you would listen. The reality is you would die. You couldn't take it. And you can't take it. So God has an alternative. If God showed up in a physical appearance and taught you, He knows the wineskin would burst. Now, we're not going to teach on the wineskins today. Study them out in the New Testament. No man puts new wine into old wineskins, else the bottles break and the wine is spilled and the bottles are marred. If God showed up in his glorified body, Jesus Christ himself to teach you, he knows your head would swell until it popped and you'd be useless to him from that point on. So what does he do? He teaches you to profit, but he uses human agency. Did you notice in this passage in Isaiah, what is he doing? 
here in this passage. He is doing his pleasure on Babylon and his arms shall be on the Chaldeans. He is interacting with man to accomplish his will through human agency. Do you hear me? He's using Babylon here to teach Israel. Now Babylon, they're Gentiles, okay? And he's using the Gentiles to teach Israel. This is not a coincidence. He's using the Gentiles because the Jews have no respect for the Gentiles. So he takes the foolish things of God to confound the wise. This is so deep. I haven't even I didn't even get this deep into it when I was studying it and it's deeper yet. I can, you ever get the feeling you jump in water and the water's deeper than you knew it was and you don't touch anything and you swim back to the top and go, "Huh, I wonder how deep that is." So you climb out and you jump in and you purposefully um, jump in a way to go even deeper and you still don't feel the bottom so you get out and you get back up on the bluff and you jump off and this time you stick your feet straight down and you go like a pencil as straight as you can and you go deep 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 10 12 15 feet and oh i didn't touch anything you start wondering how deep is this hole that's how i feel reading this passage to you today we could preach this whole concept from this passage. Here he's using the Babylonians, the Gentiles, to teach the Jews. He's bursting their, their self-righteous bubble with this thing. And yet he himself is doing it. The sovereignty of God linked directly to the agency of fallen but regenerated man. In the New Testament, here they're not even regenerated. They're wicked pagan heathens. He says, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Look at verse 18. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. Then have thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Now, why wouldn't they obey his commands? You can see it in verse 10 of 47. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am and none else beside me. This is our biggest problem. This is the reason we don't grow. This is the reason we go and fall backwards and are snared and taken. Because we think we're it. I am and none else beside me. We think that because of our wisdom and our knowledge, we don't need anybody. So God in his providence. This is the providence of discipleship today. And the title was chosen specifically, The Providence of Discipleship. God in His providence has not chosen to download to your mind things from heaven. Directly. Not much. Instead, He has chosen human agents to teach and to preach His word so that you will learn at the hands and from the mouths and seated at the feet of other fallen human men with frailty and weakness. That's God's way. You buck that, you're not going anywhere. You try and dodge that, sidestep it, you're dead in the water. Absolutely useless. There are three name three different references to God here in this prayer. God himself 
and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. God himself, apart from all human aid, speaks of the sovereignty of God. Apart from all human aid or help, the sovereignty of God. Three divine aspects are reflected by these three divine references. First is the sovereignty of God. We've looked at that. Now we're going to look at the paternity of God, which means the fatherly nature of God and his aspect of teaching us as a father. Go to Romans 8. Go to Romans 8 and verse 15. Some of you out there saying, you idiot, I know all this stuff. You need to listen. Some of you out there saying, wow, how did you get all this stuff? And you need to listen. Because God himself is the one that does it. But God uses human agents. Isn't that amazing? Verse 15. Of Romans 8. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So this spirit of adoption cries, Abba, Father. That's like Daddy. Now in Ephesians chapter 6, go there real quick. Ephesians 6.1 is a famous verse in my household. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 4 he says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to, to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, if God says this to human fathers, how much more will our Father in heaven bring us up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? So we, in order to understand the paternal aspect of discipleship, the providence of God shown in the paternal fatherly care, divine care of God and discipleship, we need to see that first of all, God sends the spirit of adoption to our hearts and establishes the relationship of fatherhood, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. But then secondly, that God takes personal responsibility in our training to train us up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But then there's another part to this paternal aspect of God's providence here, and that is the adoption of sons works its way out in chastening and instruction in teaching. Go to Hebrews 12. Now, the Bible talks in another place about a schoolmaster. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. I don't want to get into that. We don't have time. But the idea there of a schoolmaster is that a father would put a son under the care of a tutor. Someone who would teach them. And he would hire that one to teach them. And that was not dereliction of duty. That was not the father failing to do his job. That was the father doing his job by delegation. And we're going to see that God, in his sovereignty and in his providence, has chosen discipleship as the means that he would fulfill his paternal obligation, his fatherly obligation to bring you up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He's chosen discipleship as the means by which he will do that. Now, if you won't obey, then he's got a way to make you obey, and that's chastening here. Almost hate to even um, jump to this. There's so much here. I, we could go different directions. Lord, help me to know what to say, what to leave out, when to, when to say what to say. Help me, Lord, in Jesus' name. Teach us. Only you can, Lord. We're dependent on you in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 5 of Hebrews 12, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Now, there's the son 
and the father chastening. And we're going to look at that a little more in a minute. We're going to jump over here and look at Hebrews 11 or Hebrews 5.11. Hebrews 5.11. Here he's speaking to these and he's trying to teach the doctrine of Christ to the Hebrews. And he says, speaking of Christ, called of God in verse 10, an high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. All right, so this, this is going to lead us into the chastening, the part of the paternal sovereignty of God. So here he says, you're dull of hearing. <clears throat> Verse 12, for when the time, for, for when, for the time, ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age, that are of full age. I'm sorry, big difference there. Full of age would be an old, old man, and full age means that you have come to an age of responsibility. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Did you see what it takes to discern both good and evil? You have to have your senses exercised. And how do you do that? By reason of use. And how do you use your senses to exercise your senses? By the teaching of the word of God. That's what he said. You have need that one teach you again. He says you're unskillful and you need to be taught again. You're dull of hearing. And here is one who has has not learned what they're supposed to learn, but they've been given someone to learn from from so these hebrews are being addressed by one who god has sent to teach them try and paint this picture in your mind imagine a bunch of hebrews sitting in a synagogue listening to a gospel preacher maybe the apostle paul maybe timothy who knows whoever it was that wrote the book of hebrews that god used to write it and they're sitting there and they're trying to learn but here the one that sent to them says you are dull of hearing i've been trying to teach you but you're not getting it you're not listening to me it's not getting through i want to teach you better things but you're dull of hearing because your senses have not been used have not been exercised you haven't got the sense you're supposed to have because you haven't been listening to your teacher now there's a god-sent teacher and a not god-sent teacher false teachers we're not getting to that right now but if you waste your time listening to false teachers, you'll have your senses um, exercised in heresy and you'll be a mess. <coughs> but here he's got these that he's trying to teach and they're not getting it. They're not listening. <coughs> Go to Hebrews 12. Lord, help me. Let's look at this adoption of sons here in Hebrews 12. Um, He says, he speaks of him as a son, and the Lord is father. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. In verse 6, verse 7, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Do you see that? God dealeth with you as with sons. So there's the paternal aspect of God's dealing with you, the fatherly aspect. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. 
sins. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it, but let it rather be healed. (coughs) Now, this is the fatherly aspect. He says, you had fathers according to the flesh who trained you and you obeyed them and they weren't God. How much more should you obey God? So he's appealed to, first of all, God himself. Secondly, and our father. Thirdly, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ in this aspect of discipleship, um, is it's most applicable to look at his ministry of intercession. Look at Hebrews 1 and verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets and there's human sovereign will of God being exercised through human agency to communicate to man God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers you say those are some big words I'm having trouble following following you grow up I'm not that smart. I don't know much either. When I, when I hear somebody preach something and I'm not getting it, I try and study it. And sometimes I get there and get, oh, look at that high-minded idiot using all these big words so he can think he's something. Listen, I don't want to preach over your heads. I'm not trying to do that. But I am trying to teach you. And I want you to learn, and God wants you to learn, and God wants you to grow up. God wants you to learn some big words sometimes. Because big words can communicate things that it takes 25 little words to communicate. Yeah, we need to teach in a way little children can learn, but there's also a time for you to grow up and be able to eat a little bit of meat. And you know, sometimes there's meat set on the table, but you have a little toddler there that can't eat the meat, right? So you feed the toddler milk. Do you feed everybody in the room milk just because there's a toddler there? No, you feed him a little bit of milk. You maybe cut up a tiny little bite of meat and everybody just needs to do their best to learn with what you got. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, whom shall ye compare me? He says in the book of Isaiah, the son, Jesus Christ, the express image of the father of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That doesn't mean that he was made by God as in created. It just said he created all things. It means that his position as a son, as the physical son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, was exalted to that of above the angels, even though he was God from eternity past. So here's the man Christ Jesus, God in eternity past, who became a man and is God in eternity future, in eternity future, but laid down his life on the cross for mankind, died and was buried and rose again, and now he's seated at the right hand of God. Go to chapter 4 and verse 14. 
Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus is at the right hand of God. He understands our frame. He understands our needs. He understands stands our smallness and that's why he's there and this brings us to the third aspect of divine providence in discipleship and that is intercessory this is why the apostle paul calls upon our lord jesus christ for first we have god's sovereignty that god himself must teach you then we have god's paternity that god as a father will bring you up in the nurture and admonition of the lord and chasten you when you resist the instructors he gives you so that you will grow and learn and thirdly intercessory that our lord jesus christ is at the right hand of the father making intercession for us so that we can grow because he knows our frame and he knows our temptations and he knows our doubts he knows our fears he knows the things that beset us though he never fell into sin he was tempted by sin in all points tempted yet without sin and he is our great and understanding high priest in the heavenlies go to chapter 7 and verse 24 but this man because he continueth ever hath an unchangeable priesthood wherefore he is able wow get this to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them for such an high priest became us was good for us likened us such a high priest was he became like us that's what it's saying when it says became us for such an high priest became us who is holy harmless undefiled that became us have you ever heard the word um, somebody say oh um, sister so-and-so that hat really becomes you they used to talk that way okay they don't really say that anymore that means that hat it didn't become the sister the hat didn't become a person the hat looks like looks good on you compliments you um, sets off your good qualities hides your bad qualities That's what Jesus is doing in heaven, setting off your good qualities before God, hiding your bad qualities in the robe of his own flesh, in the veil of his flesh, hiding your sins from God through his blood, washing them away. That's what he does. He became us. He's becoming us. Not that he's turning into us, but that he is setting forth our good and hiding our bad. Such a high priest became us, the Bible says. (coughs) There in 7 and verse 26, lost my place. Verse 26, for such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. So this is our Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul appeals now um, unto God, now God himself, God our sovereign God, and our Father, the paternal interests of God, the fatherly interests of God to grow you up in himself, and our Lord Jesus Christ, our intercessory high priest in heaven, direct our way unto you look at chapter 9 Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15 
And for this cause, he is the mediator. Look at the context. It's Christ of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Hallelujah, chapter 10 and verse 12. Now this is, this is going to bring it all home and we'll be done, Lord willing. This should bring it all home. Um, here we're going to see how Jesus Christ in his ministry and in his intercessory ministry links the sovereignty of God, the fatherly paternity of God, and the intercessory work of God to us directly, listen to me, through the human agency of discipleship. Wow. There is no quick, easy way to grow and be established in God. It takes time, day after day, day after day, day after day, consistent, constant application of your heart to God's word and the teaching of God's word. Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. That is Jesus Christ, indisputably. Look at the context. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Get this. Wherefore, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Here he speaks of the Holy Ghost that is a witness to us. He speaks of the covenant that he made that he would put his law in our hearts and in their minds will I write them. He speaks of the forgetting of our sins, the remission of our sins, a new and living way to enter into the holiest place of all through the veil that is the flesh of Jesus Christ. He speaks of the inner accessory work of Jesus Christ as our high priest and listen to where he's going with these texts. Listen to where he's going next when he talks about the sovereignty of Almighty God and the paternity, the fatherly love of Almighty God and the intercessory work of Jesus Christ that makes you complete in him who is the head of all principality and power so that all things are subject to him. Look what he says next in verse 24 and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Do you see that? 
in the same text that he just said that Jesus, our great high priest, has made a way to the holiest of all and that he will write his word on our hearts and his law in our minds. In the same text, he tells us to provoke one another to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And the very next works, uh, very next verse, he says, for if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. So here in the context, all these great things that God has given He's given us his son as a great high priest. He's given us the new covenant. He's given us the Holy Ghost to witness to us. He's given us the law written on our hearts. He's given us the word of God written on our minds. He's given us the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. And then he says, he's given us us. He's given us each other. And he tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And he goes on to insinuate in direct context that those who separate themselves from the assembly of the believers will fail of the grace of God, will sin willfully against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And will eventually be damned to an eternity in the lake of fire. Now, if you think I'm misrepresenting that text, you read it. Study it in its context. Show me where I got out of context. So we see here that God's sovereign, paternal, intercessory will for your growth is accomplished through holy, God-ordained human discipleship. You say, I don't know God's will for my life. Get under God-given authority and obey them that have the rule over you. As it says in Hebrews 13, if you keep going, you'll get there. Go ahead and go to that verse and we'll, we'll end with that one. Obey God's authorities that he puts over your life. Follow them as they follow Christ. Recognize God's leading, not robots, but following God's delegated leadership. That's really what it all is. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. God in his sovereign will ordained your pastor, ordained your teachers, if they're God-given pastors and teachers. If they're God-called pastors and teachers, it's God's will for you to have a pastor, by the way. You say, there's no good churches, and I don't really need a pastor anyway. I hope this message has destroyed that lie. There are good pastors somewhere, and you either need to move to where one is or pray God send you one where you're at, but one of the two has to happen soon, or you are going to stagnate. It is God's will for you to either be under a pastor or pastoring. And as a pastor, you need others around you that are exhorting you and provoking you. If you're having to stand there all by yourself, you're going to have a hard road to hoe and you're probably going to stagnate. We need each other. God has sovereignly ordained that we need each other. God is a father has as a father delegated the responsibility to train up his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to people. He said, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. It's God's will. It's God's way. It's his sovereign will. It's his paternal love for you. His fatherly care for you is to give you discipleship. And thirdly there, it is through the inter intercession of Jesus Christ that you will both have and receive discipleship.
Father, in Jesus' name, help us to submit to your will and your ways. And I pray that you'd be glorified, that your name would be lifted up high and holy. And we just thank you, Lord, for your ways are higher than our ways. We thank you for the providence, the benefit the, the, of your divine benevolence, Lord, in our lives to give us discipleship, pastors and teachers, and Lord God, those that disciple us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.